the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. Okay, I think we left off on page 75, is that right? And this whole issue of mikvah. Uh, let's back up just a little bit, though, because it's been a, a couple of weeks, which reminds me, we will not be having class next week. I'm going to be down in Phoenix uh, at a conference. So, all right. Uh, chapter 3 of, of Matthew. And once again, I just want to encourage you to uh, read the book as you have time. Since we're taking it verse by verse and going phrase by phrase, we have a tendency, or it's at least possible, that we could miss the message of the whole book. And so it's important, if you, if you get a chance, sit down and read Matthew. It doesn't take that long. Just read it through. And uh, you can do that. At, in one sitting or do it in a couple of days, whatever. And that kind of keeps the whole picture in mind while we're, um, while we're looking at each tree in the forest. So uh, chapter 3 begins, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the first thing that we ask ourselves is, why is he called Yochanan Hamatbil? Uh, in the Hebrew, that would be uh, John, the one who immerses or the one who baptizes. And those of us that have had connection with the Christian church, when we read John the Baptist, uh, we were taught and we recognized that he was uh, doing a baptism. And the church... Uh, is very keen on baptism. Uh, all Every Christian church is keen on baptism, even if they have different ways of doing it or different purposes for doing it or different interpretations of why they do it. Uh, and the question is, what we have come to know as Christian baptism was it anything like what John was doing. If we just kind of brainstorm a little bit, we realize that the, we have a lot of questions about what in the world John was doing. In the first case, when we read about... Uh, baptisms or immersions in the first century as far as we know and before and of course after in the second third century we have a better grasp on uh, uh, Jewish immersion Uh, nobody did it for you you kind of did it yourself so what was John doing that's the first question second question is uh, those of us that have connection with the Christian church know that you get baptized when you get saved. To use one uh, church's terminology. Or you get baptized when you come into the covenant. I remember in, in seminary uh, doing a independent study on the Anabaptists as a requirement for one of the uh, church history courses. And the Anabaptists were in big trouble because they got baptized more than once. In other words, they many of them were sprinkled as babies in the Episcopal or, or uh, Roman Catholic Church, and when they left that and, and came to the conclusion that one should be a believer in Yeshua or Jesus before one was baptized, then they got rebaptized. Well, that was big trouble. And when we start looking at uh, the baptism or the immersions in Judaism, we realize they did it all the time. 
I mean, it wasn't just once, and it clearly wasn't just twice. It was monthly, it was weekly, it was on a regular basis. So how did the Christian church move away from... Or did they move away from what John the Baptist was doing? What was John the Baptist doing? He wasn't baptizing Gentiles. He was baptizing Pharisees and Sadducees. And then the big question comes, why in the world did Yeshua get baptized? Especially since John tells us that his baptism is a baptism that relates to repentance. Uh, Did Yeshua need to manifest repentance or something? Well... I wouldn't propose that I'm going to have answers to all those questions, but it's always nice to ask questions and then begin to look for the answers. So on page 75, the question that that confronts us is, what, can we get a handle at all on what the immersion principle or practice was in the first century? And I immediately remind you all that we don't have any first century literature I mean, that actually was written in the first century that relates uh, to, uh, to Judaism and the Bible. We have copies of copies of copies of uh, documents. And we have people who lived in the first century. We have their quotes and their teachings. And in fact, the apostolic scriptures are probably the closest thing that we have to first century literature. Because even the Mishnah itself was not um, uh, compiled or written down until the second century. And we have every reason to believe that Matthew, along with the other Gospels and, and the epistles of Paul and others, were all written in the first century. So, I mean, we have in our Bible before us, we have the oldest witness to um, this time, this period, and what they believed and what they did. So... The first thing we discover when we look at immersion in in the Judaisms of the early centuries is that it was called a mikvah. And so you may find it spelled different ways, but that's what we're going to study for the next few minutes, a mikvah in ancient Judaism. In matters of ritual purity prescribed by the Torah, bathing in water often concludes the period of uncleanness and returns the person to a state of ritual purity. Now, I think we, none of us understand, I don't think anybody understands the full circle of ritual purity. But do you understand it enough so that we can at least talk about it? Um, one of the things, one of the difficulties that we have to get over is that ritual purity, or clean and unclean, had nothing to do necessarily with sinning. Uh, if we want to take the broadest strokes of this issue of clean and unclean, it appears as though everything that is unclean in terms of making someone else clean, unclean or anything that transfers ritual impurity has some connection to death. Um, the, the, the highest level of ritual impurity was corpse defilement. That is, when you actually touched uh, the, the body of someone who had died, a corpse, or when you touched uh, an animal uh, that, uh, in some cases, uh, at least for priests, when you touched an animal that had died of its own or had been torn in the field. Um, why then would some animals be called clean and unclean? Well, that's hard to tell. It, it, it may simply be that God wanted to make a distinction, and just like he said, you can eat of this tree, but you can't eat of that tree in the garden. He may have said, you can eat from, from this animal, but you can't eat 
uh, meat from this animal for the simple reason that he wanted to make a distinction. But it is interesting that many, not all, but many of the unclean animals eat carrion. Uh, they eat things that have died, the bottom fish, the shellfish, the, um, the hawks and the, the, the owls, etc., etc. Okay. Um, what uh, another level of impurity was a woman's uh, monthly period? Why would that be considered unclean? Because it's a little death. Anytime you have a flow of blood, it is a sign of some measure of death. And so you had a, a potential life that could have come to fruition, and it didn't. A little death. So in, in some ways, it appears as though uncleanness has some connection to death. Uh, and even if it, a remote connection to death. Now, I think it's interesting, and I don't want to get off on a tangent on this, but it's, it's interesting that how does one contract ritual impurity? If you're living in the time of the Second Temple, Jerusalem, first century, how would you be, let's say you just went through a mikvah and you're clean. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, how would you then become unclean? What would, what would happen to make you unclean? Contact. Precisely, You would touch something or someone who was unclean that had the ability to transmit uncleanness to you. And this became very, very involved by the rabbis, as we know. Uh, I was reading just this week about how a metal cup that is unclean on the outside is not necessarily unclean on the inside but how the uncleanness from the outside of the cup could, as it were, crawl over the lip in certain situations. Yeah, of course. Well, why? Well, because if you drink out of it, you put your lips on both sides of it, right? You know, and this informs us when, when Yeshua says, you know, you polish the outside of the cup, but the inside is unclean. In other words, every time you drink out of it, you're going to make the outside unclean too. And every time you drink of it, you're going to make the inside un- unclean. You have to clean the inside and the outside. It has to be both clean. So you contract uncleanness uh, by contact. Now, there is, a, I think, a lesson in that. And what is the lesson? If, if you will grant me my presupposition that uncleanness relates to death in some way, has some connection, even a remote connection to death, then death passes from one person to the next. I think that's the whole issue that we're to learn from clean and unclean. How did we become unclean if we're in a, in a second temple situation by contact with someone who's unclean? How did we become sinners? Because we had a connection with someone who sinned. And, and I think Paul is, uh, is emphasizing this in, in more ways than that when he's talking about the sin that was passed on from Adam. So I think there is this, uh, shall we say, corporate solidarity of mankind in which we all have touched Adam. We all are touched by Adam, and therefore the clean and unclean laws, the purity laws, were given us as an illustration of how sin is passed from generation to generation. Not only in terms of... Uh, generational passing of one of the sin nature, but also Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. Okay, so there you have that same idea, and you have it in um, 
in the Psalms, you know, the person is blessed who does not associate, stand, sit, uh, walk, sit in the counsel of the ungodly. Why? Well, because according to the book of Proverbs, if you're around uh, the unrighteous, it's going to affect you. Okay, so where, what in the in the life of of Israel demonstrated that any more than the laws of purity. I, I don't know what it would be. There, there you have it. Everywhere you go. And what's the issue? You can't go in to the temple or into the tabernacle courtyards. You can't go in and participate if you're unclean. You're separated from that place of worship. Telling you what? That if uncleanness isn't sin itself, but is a picture, a demonstration of how sin is past how death is passed from one to another, then it also tells you that as long as you're in that state, you cannot have fellowship with God. You cannot worship Him in the way that you otherwise could. So there has to be something done with your uncleanness. It has to be resolved. You have to move from the state of being unclean to the state of clean. And the ceremony that pictured this was the ceremony of the mikveh. Why? Why would one have to immerse? Well, there's a cleansing factor, but there's also the idea that there's a new beginning. There's a death and there's a new beginning. Okay, let's go on. So, this is applied to those, this idea of ritual purity is applied to those who become unclean through a skin disorder, who are unclean through a bodily discharge. That's a little death. To the high priest on Yom Kippur and to those who led away the scapegoat. In other words, I'm giving, I'm listing those things from the Torah itself that says you're required to do a, a, a washing. Uh, to anyone who ate meat from any animal that had been killed by predators or had died on its own. To the priest who administers the ashes of the red heifer, as well as the one who burns the carcasses, uh, the carcass of the red heifer, and anyone made unclean through corpse defilement. In some cases, vessels which had acquired ritual impurity could be immersed in water in order to return to a state of purity. Now, the Torah, however, never fully describes the particulars of the ritual bath. In Leviticus 15.13, the ritual bath described for a man unclean through a bodily discharge must be in living water, mayim chaim. And that's understood to mean running water, water that isn't stagnant, that, doesn't, uh, that isn't still. Since other notices requiring a ritual bathing use similar words and phrases, it seems warranted to agree with the sages and apply the requirement of Leviticus 15.13 to all ritual baths, meaning that they all must be done in running water. Now, as you can imagine, as soon as you have a requirement, the rabbis are going to say, what does that mean? What is mayim chayim? What is the minimum that could be required for running water? Because if you know the minimum, you, then you're safe, right? You can always go a little above the minimum. Um, it may be further implied from the use of the phrase, Rachatz et basaro bamayim, bathe his flesh in water, that sufficient water for a complete bathing is implied in the biblical text. Again, the sages say, if it said he was to wash his feet, it would say feet. If it said he was to wash his hands, it would say hands. It doesn't say it. It says his flesh. So it must mean all one's flesh, not just part. As we shall see, the rabbinic halakha for a mikvah required sufficient water for a full immersion. And we know, of course, that this was, was true in the book of Acts. You know, you have the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip is saying what? Look, there's plenty of water here. What would hinder us? 
Well, why do you need plenty of water? If you're a Presbyterian, you only need a cup full. Um, nothing against the Presbyterians. I'm just saying it's, it, there are different modes that have developed within the Christian church. Okay. The word mikvah, which is spelled a couple of ways by way of uh, violation, is found four times in the Tanakh. In Genesis 1.10, it describes the gathering of waters to form the sea. In Exodus and Isaiah, it means a reservoir of water. And in Leviticus 11.36, it denotes a gathering of water in a cistern or a bore. In the biblical text, it is never used to describe a place of ritual bathing. But the rabbis adopted the term from its biblical setting and utilized it to describe a gathering of water sufficient for a ritual immersion. You know, and here I am, uh, one of these graphics-oriented uh, kinds of people, and I could have had all sort of pictures of mikvahot. I just didn't bring them. So maybe... Uh at our next class, I'll try to get some of those together and we can uh, put down the screen and look at uh, what some of the, the mikvahs look like that they've uncovered in the land of Israel. The noun is derived from the verb kava, to gather, and thus a gathering place for water, mikvah. In Jeremiah 14.8 and 17.13, the very word mikvah, however, means hope and may derive from the fact that those living in arid regions of the Middle East always considered places of abundant water, that is, an oasis, the anticipated intermediate resting place along a journey. You know, it was the naturally given rest stops uh, as you, as you journeyed. You went from one oasis to another. The rabbinic halakha that developed regarding the physical requirements of a mikvah, as well as its proper use, is found primarily in the sixth tractate of the order of the Mishnah and Tosefta called, appropriately, mikvahot. Mikvah is one, and mikvahot are two or more. Okay, that's the plural. Though the rabbinic halakha on mikvahot is very involved... We may briefly summarize the rabbinic requirements here. Now you say, Tim, why why do we care about the rabbinic requirements? Well, I don't know if the Mishnah reflects what was going on in the first century. In some cases, it surely doesn't. In some cases, it, it has evolved. I'm, there are two sides to this and scholars on both sides, but I'm more and more convinced that the destruction of the temple was far more devastating than we understand to the Judaisms of the first century. And not the least of which was the Sadducees who essentially ceased to exist or had any purpose to exist. Uh, because once, this, once the temple was gone, what were they to do? Besides that, that's where they got all their money and all their clout. And, and they didn't have that anymore. So essentially what you had after that were the Essenes who didn't last all that long um, and the Pharisees who were the fathers of what we know as rabbinic Judaism. They, what we have in the Mishnah is the work of the Pharisees, essentially, and in the Talmuds and in the Midrashim. So when we think of, of uh, ancient Judaism, we have to be honest with ourselves. We're, thinking, we're, we're reading ancient Judaism from one of the surviving sects. That's why the Qumran scrolls have been such, such a find. They give us an insight into a, another sect of Judaism than what we read in the, the rabbinic literature. Now, so why study the rabbinic uh, requirements for a mikvah? They may in some cases reflect at least some of the argumentation and some of what was going on in the first century. If you were a person going uh, to take a mikvah, you would have to know some of this. Or if you were people that were uh, guarding or taking care of a mikvah. All right. What are the physical requirements of a mikvah according to rabbinic halakha? Number one, ponds, pools, rivers, or larger bodies of water are valid in most cases because water is continually coming in and going out. And this was the case with the ocean. The ocean was considered to be proper for a mikvah. 
any natural body of water that contains less than 40 sayas, which is approximately 120 gallons, is invalid. So there's plenty of water here. We can do a mikvah. It didn't matter what temperature it was, although um, it became tradition that it, it should be cool rather than warm. Those of us that uh, may have grown up in a Baptist environment know that there were elaborate ways to make the baptistry warm. Um, and if the janitor forgot to turn on the uh, baptistry heater for the baptism that was coming up on that Sunday evening or whenever, uh, it was not a happy happy sight. Um, number two, water for a mikvah must flow from a natural source and may not be drawn. That is a very important point uh, in the Mishnah. If you draw water and take a mikvah, that is not valid. You remain unclean. Why? Because it's not mayim chayim. Drawn water, mayim sheuvim, defined as water that does not flow, invalidates a mikvah. Rainwater, however, if directed into a mikvah without being collected in a vessel, thus constituting drawn water, is valid for a mikvah. So, in other words, you couldn't draw, you couldn't collect rain in a barrel and then dump that water into the mikveh and make it valid. No, no, no. That was drawn water. That wasn't allowed. So you had to have a reservoir that would collect the rainwater and would constantly be allowing the water to flow out as it was being collected, a little at a time, even if the littlest at a time. However, you can imagine the rabbis got around a lot of these difficulties. Rainwater, however, if directed into a mikvah without being collected in a vessel, thus constituting drawn, drawn water, is valid for a mikvah. Once a mikvah has the minimum amount of water needed, that is 120 gallons, added drawn water does not invalidate the mikvah. Okay, so once you have a mikvah that can maintain 120 gallons, some going out and some coming in, once you have that going, you can keep adding in drawn water to it and it doesn't mess it up. Because you, you have enough water to constitute mayim chayim, running water. Water from a natural source must be pure, that is, not discolored by any admixture. So you couldn't have the beaver dam upstream, just right upstream, and divert that water you had to make sure that it was filtered or that there was, that there was no admixture. Um, number four, water directed to a mikvah from a natural source may not flow through pipes made of materials susceptible to ritual impurities. Okay, so... Let's say you have a reservoir that is collecting rainwater, okay? And you have steel pipe or iron pipe that is taking that water down to your mikvah. Uh-uh. Why? Because metal is susceptible to uh, attracting impurities. So you would never know if there was, if someone had touched that metal that was, you know, leaned on that pipe that was unclean. Now, all the water that comes through that pipe is unclean. And, okay, rust is kind of a form of death. So, what did they use? They used stone and clay, because stone and clay are not, according to the rabbis, susceptible to impurities. Since clay was not susceptible to ritual impurity, this became the material most often used for directing water to mikvahot. Additional rabbinic halakha ruled that pipes attached to the ground are not susceptible to ritual impurities. So they got around metal, using metal pipes by making sure it was attached to the ground. Why would that be? Uh, because, uh, I don't know why, to be honest with you. Actually, actually, when you read through mikvahot, uh, tractate mikvahot, and you read through the uh, uh, the other halakha on mikvah, it's very involved. It's very extremely involved. Um, and I didn't take time to go through each and every 
little part of it. Two mikvaot that utilize the same natural water source may not have water from one flowing to the other unless the upper one is able to maintain the minimum amount of water needed from the natural source. In other words, if you had a mikvah up here and the water running out of it, then going down to another mikvah, okay, and that running out, you could do that, but there always had to be 120 gallons up here. Could never, it could never go low. Yes, question. Is, is algae and the like considered contaminant? If it discolored the water, if the water was brown or something, it was not allowed. However, since the sages ruled that once a mikvah has the minimum amount of water needed, added drawn water does not invalidate it, sufficient water for a lower mikvah was virtually assured. So in other words, okay, let's say I have a, a gate that I can, you know, here's the mikvah and the water's running out of it, and I can close down the, the exit so that it's not running out quite as fast. Then when I want to utilize the mikvah below, I open that, right? so that it has enough water in the lower mikvah. But now all of a sudden I may not have enough water in the upper mikvah. It's fine as long as I had 120 gallons to start with. I can keep dumping water in there. So they, they found ways around. Well, you can imagine they're in the desert here. Hello? You know? And if, you, if you're ever, uh, if, you, if you visit Israel and you're at Matzadah, you see how ingenious they were at collecting the water into the cisterns so that they could comply with the rabbinic rules out in the middle of the desert on a high spot and still have the mikvahs that they needed uh, for that number of people that resided there. It's amazing. Same in Qumran. Qumran had huge uh, uh, reservoirs of water that they use for the mikvahs. The minimum size of the mikvah must accommodate the needed water and allow for a person to be fully immersed. So when the person is being fully immersed, the water cannot be diminished by going over the sides. You know, the minimum amount of water cannot be diminished by going over the sides of the mikvah. You understand what I'm saying? Specific gravity and so forth. So um, one would have to uh, make sure that they had a mikvah that was large enough for the largest people that were going to be utilizing the mikvah. You know, if you had a fellow that was six, six foot, to make sure he'd get all the way. All the way under. And in fact, we find the mikvahot that are excavated in Israel to be really, some of them quite large, very large, uh, numbers of, of them at Qumran. Okay, well, this general, any questions on those? I mean, not, not like that's something you're going to write home about, but, you know, maybe you hadn't, uh, had never thought about the, 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 you know, giving you just a little taste of the kind of uh, minutiae and detail that the rabbis go to. Uh, we could, uh, um, we could point our finger at this and say, oh, look at these guys. are just they're, they're concerned about the things that aren't important. Well, that isn't really the way they looked at it. They looked at it this way. God told us we should do washing. He said we should wash all of the flesh. And until we do, we're unclean. And so we need to be clean. We want to be clean so that we can comply with what God has said. So how do we do that? And they wanted, they were careful to make sure they did it as far as they could tell, right in every way. Okay, while this general summary is of the later rabbinic halakha in regard to a mikvah, the many mikvah oat uncovered in archaeological digs in the land substantiate that in many regards, significant aspects of the later halakha reflect the earlier practice. Thus, elaborate systems for the flow of water from natural sources are known, and the enclosures themselves are clearly large enough to accommodate the minimum water requirements established by the sages. Moreover, the common steps that descend into the mikvah oat uncovered in the land indicate that full immersion was the common practice. There were steps that went down to the point where you could go down and probably just squat 
and be all the way under. Now, what requirements, and this would include even up to present day, uh, what are the rabbinic requirements for, for doing, for performing a mikvah? By the way, mikvah is actually the place where the water is gathered, but it's become a, a verbal noun. We do a mikvah. That is, we do an, a, a ritual immersion. Number one, since a mikvah is not a washing for cleanliness, but in order to fulfill a Torah commandment, the body must be entirely clean before descending into the mikvah. So the rabbis say, look, this is not the public bath. That's not what it's for. You're not coming here to get clean after you worked all day. You're coming here to fulfill a commandment of God. So bathe before you come. It's kind of like the swimming pool. You know, you're supposed to take the shower. It became customary then to bathe before undergoing a mikvah and to thoroughly clean oneself, including the fingernails and hair. And especially in modern Judaism, uh, if you go, if you're in an Orthodox uh, community that have their own mikvah, they will have uh, a room. You know, there, there will be there'll be a mikvah for women and another mikvah for men. There'll be a room. They'll may for the women at least. There may even be attendants that will help and uh, you know brush your hair, clean your fingernails, and so forth and so on. The person or object must be completely immersed in the water of the mikvah, and the water must come into contact with the entire body or surface of the object. In order to assure that this requirement has been done, it became customary to immerse three times. The one immersion fulfills the halakha if done properly. It also became customary to have an attendant watch to make sure a complete immersion was done. Okay, so you're all the way down, you come back up, the attendant says, yes, it was complete. Or now you're, you know, your elbow was out or, you know, whatever. Yeah. The question of intention or kavana was debated among the sages. Some ruled that a mikvah is invalid if the one immersing did not do so in regard to the specific commandment to bathe. Others disagreed and ruled that the immersion was valid regardless of one's intentions. So... If you just, um, you know, if you were bebopping your way along and said, you know, you were with, with all your f- teenage friends and you were going to jump up to the temple to meet some more of your friends and have a good time in the temple courts and you said all of a sudden, oh, you know what, I probably better take a mikvah. So you just stop by and jump in and jump back out. The, some of the sages say, oh, that, that's, that doesn't work. You have to realize why you were unclean, what made you unclean, and then you go to the mikvah with that in mind and with the intention of fulfilling what God had said to do. And if your intention is proper, then the mikvah is valid. If your intention is not proper, it's not valid. If you, if you just went to the mikvah because you wanted all your neighbors to see how holy you were, that, that didn't work. But who would know that but you? This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit TorResource.com. Yes. Regards to them knowing what they had done wrong or whatever it was for impurity, didn't they get to the point they just did it in case they had walked across the grave unknowingly? It seems as though that is the case that there, that it was the default that uh, before you went up to the temple you did a you, you did a mikvah, uh, but one could still have intention saying uh, if you went into the mikvah if I have come in contact with someone who had 
contacted a corpse or if I have sat on a chair of someone that was unclean or so you know then this is what I'm doing it for there had to be purpose that's the point of the of the rabbis they say you can't you can fulfill a mitzvah, uh, a mitzvah any mitzvah if you don't have an intention to fulfill it others would say no no it doesn't matter you go into the water and back up you fulfilled it that's enough so we'll talk a bit more about that after the destruction of the temple ritual purity laws were suspended for the obvious reason that the need to be ceremonially clean related to the temple and its services. <clears throat> you know, the idea that people went around saying, don't touch me because I don't want to get unclean, is nonsense. The only reason that you didn't want to become unclean is if you were planning to, to go to the tabernacle or go to the temple. Other than that, it didn't matter. <clears throat> now, I'm not saying that there weren't those who were maybe um, trying to live some kind of esoteric life of... Uh, as though they would want to live in their home the same way that they were in the temple, that kind of a thing. But generally speaking, as far as we can tell, that wasn't the case. However, among the sages, the mikvah was enjoined upon the people in three cases. In other words, even after the destruction of the temple. For the nidah, that is the menstruant, for the proselyte, and for vessels purchased from Gentiles. Now, since the Torah prohibits sexual union during the time of a wife's menstruation, and since the penalty attached to this commandment was that of being cut off from one's people, it was considered proper for a woman to mark her return to purity by performing a mikvah. And that's still the case today in Orthodox uh, settings. In other words, it is absolutely prohibited for a husband to have any sexual uh, uh, connection with his wife while she is in her period. So at what point then, if, if, and for what reason? Because they say this is a capital punishment kind of a commandment. You shall be cut off from your people. So that's how important God takes it. He says, okay, well then, if that's the case, let's mark and make sure we know when you've come back into purity. Understand what they're saying? So even though they're, they're, it's not purity with relation to the temple, it was of such a nature, of such an important nature from a Torah perspective that many of the Orthodox communities even today still follow that. The halakha of immersing dishes or vessels received or, or purchased from Gentiles was most likely given as a curb against assimilation, uh, especially after the destruction of the temple. Now, it seems like this happened in the time of Yeshua too, but um, from all that we can read. But you understand what I mean by that? In other words, I, the, the Jewish teachers wanted the, the people to keep saying, look, don't get too comfortable with these Gentiles. Because if you do, we're going to lose our identity, we're going to lose our community, so forth and so on. So every time you buy something from a Gentile, you have to take it and dunk it. It just, it just maintained a certain boundary. We'll discuss proselyte immersion here in just a second. All right. While a good number of mikvahot have been uncovered through archaeological excavation of the land, we actually have very little information about their use during the days of the Second Temple. It is clear that the purity of the temple and its courts was strictly guarded, and the number of mikvahot discovered on the south of the Temple Mount as well as on the Mount itself attest to this as well. So there were a lot of mikvahot right around the temple. That, why? Well, the only reason we can give is that a lot of people needed them and, and used them. The rabbinic literature describes the ritual of the proselyte as concluding with a ritual immersion. Our rabbis taught, if at the present time a man desires to become a proselyte, he is to be addressed as follows. 
What reason have you for desiring to become a proselyte? Do you not know that Israel at the present time are persecuted and oppressed, despised, harassed, and overcome by afflictions? If he replies, I know, and yet am unworthy, he is accepted forthwith and is given instruction in some of the minor and some of the major commandments. He is informed of the sin of the neglect of gleanings. Okay, what is that? In other words, you're not supposed to go back and pick the grapes a second time. You're not to pick up the sheaves of grain that you drop. You have to leave those. The forgotten sheaf, the corner, that is the corner of the fields, and the poor man's tithe. He is also told of the punishment for the transgression of the commandments. Furthermore, he is addressed thus. Be it known to you that before you came to this condition, if you had eaten suet, you would have not been punishable with karat. If you had profaned the Sabbath, you would not have been punishable with the stoning. But now, were you to eat suet, you would, you would be punished with karat. Were you to profane the Sabbath, you would be punished with stoning. As he is informed of the punishment for the transgression of the commandments, so is he informed of the reward granted for their fulfillment. He is told, be it known to you, that the world to come was made only for the righteous, and that Israel at the present time are unable to bear either too much prosperity or too much suffering. Now, that, that goes back to the, uh, to the notice in Isaiah 62 that all Israel is righteous. So if you want to be righteous, you need to become part of Israel. However, being part of Israel isn't all that wonderful at times. He is not, however, to be persuaded or dissuaded too much. If he accepted, he is circumcised forthwith. Should any shreds which render the circumcision invalid remain, he is to be circumcised a second time. In other words, his circumcision has to be a valid circumcision. As soon as he is healed, arrangements are made for his immediate ablution, that is, his immersion into water, when two learned men must stand by his side and acquaint him with some of the minor commandments and with some of the major ones. When he comes up after his ablution, he is deemed to be an Israelite in all respects. So there we have somebody standing by, right? Not only to help him, the proselyte with the mikveh, and make sure that he does it correctly, but to remind him why he's doing it. Does that sound a little bit like John? <laughs> They're witnesses also, absolutely. Yep, in the, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. So that proselyte, then they would stand as his witness saying, yes, he completed the full ritual of a proselyte. He's to be received as an Israelite in every way. <clears throat> we may also note the commentary on Numbers 15 in Sifrei where we read, Rabbi says, just as an Israelite did not enter the covenant except by means of three things, circumcision, immersion, and acceptance of a sacrifice, so it is the same with the proselytes. Now, how did Israel receive the covenant by circumcision, immersion, and acceptance of sacrifice? Well, before, uh, before she ever went down to Egypt, she was given the commandment of circumcision, right? Genesis 17. Before she ever came into the land, all the males were circumcised, right? At Gilgal. What about immersion? The Red Sea. She came through the water. It was dry, but it, nonetheless, they went through the water. It was considered to be, the rabbis considered the crossing of the Red Sea to be a mikvah. Uh, acceptance of a sacrifice? Well, there was the sacrifice at the uh, giving of the Torah itself, right? Where uh, Moses sprinkled the, the blood on the people. So it is the same with the proselyte. That is with the gerim, with the stranger, with sojourner. However, exactly what the mikvah was thought to accomplish in the ritual of the proselyte is not precisely clear. The idea that the mikvah somehow washed away Gentile uncleanness does not seem to be substantiated by the later rabbinic texts. 
For instance, in the Talmud, Pesachim 92, and um, this is also in Mishnah Idiot, um, I think 5, not, I don't remember, but it's referenced there in, in Mishnah as well. And Onan performs Tebula. Um, okay, Tebula means immersion. Everybody know what an Onan is? Okay, it's a, it's a man that has uh, an emission and eats his Passover offering in the evening, but he may not partake of other sacrifices. Okay, so as long as he uh, uh, bathes uh, in, at the proper time. Why? Because according to the Torah, when, when there is a, 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 an emission of semen, uh, the man bathes and he's clean in the evening. Okay, so it doesn't, doesn't require uh, any length of time. But he may not partake of other sacrifices. In other words, the other sacrifices would be on the level of priest, priestly uh, uh, cleanness, and he may, not be, he may not have attained that. One who hears about his dead for the first time and one who collects the bones of his parents perform tabula, immersion, and eat sacred flesh. In other words, there you're, you're able to eat that which is to be eaten only by those who are clean. If a proselyte was converted on the eve of Passover, Beit Shammai maintain he performs the tibula, the, the uh, immersion, and eats his Passover offering in the evening. While Beit Halal rule, one who separates himself from the state of uncircumcision is like one who separated himself from a grave. It makes sense to you. Rabbinic stuff is kind of tough, isn't it? They, they, don't, they talk in a little bit uh, circles. Well, let's go on and read it, and then I'll try to explain it if you have further um, questions. Now, I haven't given you the whole tractate, I mean the whole page here. I've kind of, but here's the Gemara, or the additional rabbinic ruling on the phrase, a proselyte who was converted. Hanah said in Rabbi Yochanan's name, the con- controversy is in respect of an uncircumcised heathen where Beit Hallel hold, he is forbidden to eat in the evening as a preventative measure lest he become defiled the following year by the dead. And he argues, did I not perform Tebula immersion last year and eat of the Passover offering? So now, too, I will perform Tebula and eat. But he will not understand that the previous year he was a heathen and not susceptible to uncleanness, whereas now he is an Israelite and susceptible to uncleanness. While Beit Shammai held, we do not enact the preventative measure. With regard to an uncircumcised Israelite, all agree that that he performs Tebulah and eats his Passover in the evening. And we do not preventatively forbid an uncircumcised Israelite on account of an uncircumcised heathen. It was taught likewise, Rabbi Shimon ben Eliezer said, Beit Shammai and Beit Halel do not differ about an uncircumcised Israel. They both agree that he performs Tebulah and eats his Passover offering in the evening. About what do they differ? About an uncircumcised heathen or a Gentile or Beit Shammai rule, he performs Tebulah and eats his Passover offering the evening, while Beit Hillel maintain, he who separates himself from uncircumcision is as though he separated from a grave. Okay, here, let me see if I can give you a quick explanation of this. Okay, question is, you have a Gentile who converts to Judaism according to rabbinic uh, halakha, and he's done everything he needs to do, and he circumcised the day before Passover, and in the even, in the afternoon or whatever, he does a mikvah. He finishes now his, uh, his ritual of becoming a proselyte. So he's an Israelite in every way. So shouldn't he be able to eat the Passover meal? Well, Shemai says, absolutely. And Hillel says, no, 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 wait a minute. He's going to think that any time he's, he's unclean, 
He can become clean in a day. That's what he's going to think. Next year, he's going to have corpse defilement and think, oh, I just have to do a mikvah and I can eat the Passover. But you can't do that. With corpse defilement, you have to wait seven days. So we should tell him that he has to wait seven days now. You understand his, his argument? We don't want him to... So it's preventative. Okay. Well, Shammai said, well, what about an Israelite who's uncircumcised? Why would you have an Israelite uncircumcised? Well, Daddy didn't do his work, you know? And so, and so uh, you know, he's a young man, and he says, you know, I've got to take care of this. My dad didn't obey the Lord, and I want to. So here you have an uncircumcised Israelite, but he knows the rules. You know, he's been raised in it, right? So either one of them say, okay, it's okay if he eats, it, if he eats the Passover that night. And Shammai rules, we don't make a preventative rule that affects an Israelite and a Gentile in the same way. So, does that help explain a little bit? Okay. So, the apparent conflict between Hillel and Shammai does not pertain to an Israelite who is circumcised on the eve of the Passover, but only to the Holocaust pertaining to a Gentile convert who is circumcised on the eve of the Passover. Do you think that ever happened? Probably not. But can you see how the rabbis rule? I mean, they look at, they look at a case that will be the most obvious case. If it goes one way or the other, it, then it rules for all the other cases. If it can happen on the eve of the Passover, it can happen then any, any other day. But the point that is interesting for our discussion of mikvahot is that Hillel holds that a Gentile is not susceptible to uncleanness because the laws of purity in the Torah do not apply to him. Do you remember when we read, you know, before it didn't matter what you ate, now it matters. Once he became a proselyte, however, the laws of purity do apply, and Hillel fears that admitting the proselyte immediately to the Pesach Seder might cause confusion in his mind about his newly acquired need to become ceremonially clean before eating the Pesach sacrifice. So the whole point of that is this. Did a Gentile take a mikvah because he was unclean? Wait a minute. Can a Gentile be unclean? The laws of purity don't apply to him, right? While some of the sages may have held that the mikvah of the proselyte did in some way physically remove impurities of idolatry and other pagan uncleanness, it seems most likely that the mikvah was considered simply the final step in the proselyte ritual as a symbol of a change of status. When the proselyte comes up from the water of the mikvah, he is regarded as an Israelite in every way. According to the Bavli, one who has become a proselyte is like a child newly born, meaning that all ties to one's former life have been severed. The symbolism of death and resurrection dramatically performed in immersion demonstrated the end of his existence as a Gentile and the beginning of his life as a bona fide covenant member of Israel. It is this symbolism that most likely stands behind the command to bring Gentiles into the mikvah in the discipleship process enjoined upon the twelve at the conclusion of Matthew's gospel. Why did Yeshua say to his disciples, go and make disciples of all of the Gentiles, all the nations, doing a mikvah? Because they were to understand that they were dying. Now, unfortunately, that became very much uh, Platonized. That is... Oh, you mean it was a death of one's thoughts and a rebirth of new thoughts? Uh-uh. No, no, no. You know, it's a death. All of the life that you lived before, you're dead to that. And you're starting out something new. Now, if you can put that in the picture of first century Judaism as a Gentile, you, you, you would understand that, I think, a little better. 
Because if you were a Gentile and you converted to Judaism, almost inevitably you lost ties with almost everything that you had before. Jews were not all that loved. You might lose your job. You might lose your family relations. It's just the way that now it's all flip-flopped. It's just the way what happens with a Jewish person who comes to faith in Yeshua. There is a real breaking of, of ties. So when we read in the apostolic scriptures about dying with the Messiah and that baptism is a picture of that death, it, it, it is with this in mind, with this background in mind, that the, that the proselyte has cut himself off from his former life and he has become now an Israelite in something that he had never been before. And now he had a whole new history. He had a whole new way of living. He had a whole new way of looking at life. And he had a whole new set of holocaust that he was going to live by. But it is clear that John's baptism was not that of proselytes, right? Those who came to him were from Pharisees and Sadducees. So we must inquire about the use of the mikvah, not as a means of regaining the status of ritual purity, but as enjoined by John to those who were coming out to him in the desert. We'll do that when we get into those verses. What is the spiritual significance of performing a mikvah? The issue of intention in performing... By, by the way, are, is this... Should I go through, should I summarize quickly and go past this, or do you want to take the time to look at this? Is this okay? Okay. Sometimes I think I get excited about things that nobody else is excited about. <laughs> the issue of intention in performing a mitzvah or a commandment was clearly taught by some of the sages, and this pertains to the performance of a mikvah as well. Rambam, I know he's late, but, but he gives us some interesting thoughts here. It is plain and manifest that the laws about uncleanness and cleanness are decrees laid down by Scripture and not matters about which human understanding is capable of forming a judgment. In other words, he, like all the rabbis, would say, if you try to figure out why God said this animal's unclean and that animal's clean, you're never going to be able to get it all together. It's just it's beyond our understanding. It's just God said to do it, so we do it. For behold, they are included among the divine statutes. So too, immersion as a means of freeing oneself from uncleanness is included among the divine statutes. In other words, we don't really understand why he would have us do this. Why does it work? Now, uncleanness is not mud or filth, which water can remove, but is a matter of scriptural de decree and dependent upon the intention of the heart. Therefore, the sages have said, if a man immerses himself but without special intention, it is as though he has not immersed himself at all. Nevertheless, we may find some indication for the moral basis of this. Just as one who sets his heart on becoming clean becomes clean as soon as he has immersed himself, although nothing new has befallen his body, so too one who sets his heart at cleansing himself from the uncleanness that besets men's souls, namely wrongful thoughts and false convictions, becomes clean as soon as he consents in his heart to shun those counsels and bring his soul into the waters of pure reason. Behold, Scripture says, And I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you may God in his great mercy cleanse us from every sin iniquity and guilt amen so that's that's from uh, from Rambam what's his point he says look you need to understand it's not just the ritual that makes you clean it has something to do with your heart you see, the sages weren't, a part, you know, people who talk about the sages and don't read the sages don't understand that they did not just deal with externals. They dealt with the, with the issue of the heart time and time again. In, uh, in Mishnah Yoma, we read, he who says, I shall sin and repent, sin and repent, they give him no chance to do repentance. I will sin and the day of atonement will atone. The day of atonement does not atone. In other words, if you say, oh, it doesn't matter what I do, 
I'll live however I want, do whatever I want, because Day of Atonement's coming, I'll be okay. The sages say, guess what? Day of Atonement comes and goes, and you didn't, doesn't, doesn't touch you at all. So even atonement has to do with intention. Indeed, the sages of the Mishnah teach that the purpose of the mikvah was to become holy, and this should not be construed as pertaining only to the physical or the non-physical, for there was no such clear bifurcation in the mind of the sages. We have to keep reminding ourselves of this. The sages did not put a high pro- higher priority on one's soul than they did on one bod- one's body. They saw the two vitally connected. In the same Midrash, uh, Yoma 8.9, 8, uh, our Mishnah, Rabbi Akiva is quoted. Rabbi Akiva said, Happy are you, Israel. Who is it before whom you become clean? And who is it that makes you clean? Your Father which is in heaven, as it is said, and I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. And it further says, You hope, that is, mikvah of Israel, the Lord. Jeremiah 17:13. Just as the mikvah renders clean the unclean, so does the Holy One, blessed be He, render Israel clean. So even the sages, even Akiva who was a near contemporary of Paul, saw the connection between a spiritual connection with God in terms of obeying Him and trusting Him and doing what He said, and the physical mikvah. The main point to be gleaned from this is that though the performance of a mikvah was the ceremony which rendered a person ritually clean, some of the sages recognized that one's heart intention was a necessary prerequisite. This accords with the view of the Qumran sect, which, owing to the mikvah oat discovered at Qumran, were very keen on ritual immersion. The community rule gives the purpose of the yachad, that is, the community. This is the rule for the men of the yachad who volunteer to repent from all evil and to hold fast to all that he, by his goodwill, has commanded. They are to separate from the congregation of perverse men. In the same context, we read, none of the perverse men is to enter purifying waters used by the men of holiness and so contact their purity. Indeed, it is impossible to be purified without first repenting of evil inasmuch as impurity adheres to all who transgress his word. So do you hear what they're saying there? If you're in the process of transgressing and you come and do a mikvah, forget it. A mikvah doesn't do anything for you. You have to get your heart pure before you come to the mikvah. That's what Qumran said. Does that sound familiar to you? Regarding one whose halakha did not match that of the Qumran sect, and whose life therefore remained, from their perspective, disobedient to the Torah, we read in uh, a few chapters earlier in the rule of the community, yet he cannot be justified by what his willful heart declares lawful, preferring to gaze on darkness rather than the ways of light. In other words, just because you think that you're doing okay, I mean, let's set this up a little bit. Qumran said, look, we know what the Torah says, and we know how you're supposed to live, and nobody else knows. So you Pharisees over there, you think you got all the rules right. Well, you may think you got it all right, but you got it wrong. So until you come and agree with, with our rules, you're, you're in darkness rather than light. With such an eye, he cannot be reckoned faultless. Ceremonies of atonement cannot restore his innocence, neither cultic waters his purity. He cannot be sanctified by baptism in oceans and rivers, nor purified by mere ritual bathing. 
Unclean, unclean shall he be all the days that he rejects the laws of God, that is, as we understand them, refusing to be disciplined in the yachad, in the community of his society, which was Qumran. For only through the spirit pervading God's true society can there be atonement for a man's ways, all of his iniquities. Thus, only can he gaze upon the light of life and so be joined to his truth by his Holy Spirit, purified from all iniquity. The parallels to John's mikveh for repentance are remarkable, I think, to this text. For there is both a call for repentance from sin, evidenced by how one lives, required before one undergoes the mikveh of initiation into the yachad, as well as the work of the Ruach HaKodesh in connection with the mikveh and the cleansing of iniquities. And what are we going to discover? John is out of the Jordan. He's calling all these people to repentance, right? They're going to come, and what's he going to say? Hey, who asked you to come? Go do the works of repentance before you come. And when they finally do come, when Yeshua comes and they go out into the water, what happens? The Spirit descends in the form of a dove. You have the Holy Spirit involved in this whole process of mikveh. I mean, it's, it's amazing the, the parallels that we find in some of the Qumran uh, literature. All right. Yeah. Uh. I was just wondering, like at Qumran, if somebody uh, went into the mikvah and they felt they were uh, shouldn't be there, they were impure, could that make the mikvah impure? Would they ever change the water or anything? No. That, that's why if it was running water, running water that had sufficient running in and running out was not susceptible to impurity. However, in Qumran, they, they, they pushed the purity laws beyond even what the Pharisees did. For instance, here's an example. The Pharisees said that if you have a pitcher that is ritually clean, full of water that is ritually clean, and you pour it into a vessel that is unclean, then cleanness cannot crawl its way against the current up the stream and make your ritually clean vessel unclean. Ronnie said, no, that's not true. If you pour clean water into an unclean vessel, that unclean vessel, through contact through that water, makes the vessel you have in your hand unclean, makes you unclean. So they were, they were one step beyond even the Pharisees. I think any of us who have done any plumbing know that uh, uncleanness, Baruch Hashem, does not run up against the stream. And the stream takes the impurities away. And this is, uh, this is why we have modern plumbing in our homes, and it works. All right. Uh, so let's summarize. This brief excursus on the use of mikvah ot in the first century, and we haven't answered maybe the most important question, and that is, what was John, what was the uh, import of, uh, of his baptism uh, that he was enjoining upon people in the Jordan? I think now you can see, though, right? In other words, they were preparing themselves for something that was coming, and they wanted to be ritually clean. But in that, they had to have an intention. What was their intention? Their intention was to be ready for the coming kingdom of heaven. They were preparing themselves for the coming kingdom of heaven. In doing that, they wanted to be ritually clean by way of intention of anticipating it. And how must they be ritually clean? They had to be ritually clean first by, by getting rid of the iniquity of heart and soul. Once they had done that, then they could do the mikveh as a demonstration of their, their intention to receive the kingdom that was coming. Um, so this is what is meant by a mikveh with regard to repentance, a mikveh that shows repentance.
now we have the bigger question. Okay, what does that mean for Yeshua? But summarizing uh, our study on the mikvah. Number one, there, well, uh, though there is a paucity of data from the earliest strata of rabbinic literature concerning the precise meaning of the mikvah, it is clear from both literary and archaeological evidence that ceremonial immersion was well known and generally practiced by a wide spectrum of Jewish sects in the early centuries. That's undeniable. Number two, the Torah commandment requiring living water for mikvah was of central concern to the rabbis as they developed the halacha for mikvahot. So the difference between running water and drawn water. While some, perhaps many, may have viewed the water of the mikvah as a cleansing agent for removal of ritual impurities, it is clear that some of the sages recognized the need for cleansing of the soul or repentance as the highest meaning of the mikvah ceremony. Four, the fact that a mikvah concluded the proselyte ritual and that the general ruling of the sages was that a Gentile is not susceptible to all of the laws of purity, which pertained only to Jews, would indicate that the mikvah in this case signified a change of status more than a cleansing process for ritual impurity. However, since vessels procured from Gentiles were also required to undergo immersion, the proselyte mikvah may have functioned in both spheres, that is, cleansing of ritual defilement and change of status. By the way, it seems that there were some of the sages who said that one could transmit uh, idolatrous impurities through physical touch so that the meat that is offered to an idol actually carries with it some idol impurity. And when you eat it, you have somehow connected yourself to idolatry. Paul didn't believe that. He said, look, idols are nothing. They haven't got that kind of power to do anything like that. Okay, we can talk about that later. Number five. There, uh, while there was a debate among the sages regarding whether a mikvah done without proper intention was valid, there is a significant, or there is a significant evidence to show that at least some of the rabbinic authorities stressed the need for heartfelt repentance that preceded the performance of a mikvah. From the Qumran scrolls, we see that at least one sect of Judaism considered the mikvah as an entrance requirement into their community, and that it was construed as evidence of one's soul or heart commitment to righteousness, as the sect defined it. In addition, the the sect of Qumran also collated the work of the Holy Spirit with the performance of the mikvah. So we have many of the same elements uh, from, uh, from the other literature pertaining to, uh, to the ritual immersion. So when we have, when all of a sudden in the book of Matthew we kind of confronted with this uh, guy by the name of John the Baptizer, uh, had we been uh, a little more attuned with the first century, we wouldn't have been surprised. Uh, maybe we weren't surprised because we are more attuned with the modern Christianity. We say, oh, we know what baptism is. But it had nothing to do with, with uh, well, I shouldn't say nothing. It, it was entirely different in the way it was administered and for its purposes than what came to be uh, known uh, as Christian baptism. All right, well, uh, uh, we're going to stop there for tonight. And that's good because I have some additional thoughts on Kingdom of Heaven that I didn't get to, to write. Here's the question you should be asking yourself, and I'd like to hear your, your input. What exactly is the Kingdom of God? How do we know if the Kingdom of God has come? In what was new? Or was there anything new? Hadn't the Kingdom of God come before? So when John says, repent, for the kingdom of God is coming near, or the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is just about here, what was it that he anticipated? 
And why were people getting so excited about this? Okay? So you come with those answers, and then I'll, I'll be happy to listen. Um, and we'll, and, and you, you, should, you should know that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven pervades the Gospels. It is the message that Yeshua and his, and his apostles are teaching, so we really need to know what that is. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. 